Welcome to the Fintech Law Matters podcast, delving into the latest developments in fintech, finance, and law. Sit back and benefit from timely in-depth analysis, brought to you by a longtime securities lawyer and industry veteran, R. Tamara De Silva. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am uh, extremely honored to have such heavy hitters in the field of market structure and cybersecurity. So thank you, John, and thank you, Michael. So welcome to my podcast. I'm here with Michael Phillips, who is an industry veteran in cybersecurity. His clients include the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and FCMs, and John Rappa, who's the CEO and president of Telefson a financial consulting firm, and a 30-year veteran of market structure. So thank you. So one of the reasons that I wanted to discuss cybersecurity, and it's a big topic, is I wanted to discuss what happened at Eon, or Ion. I'm not sure how you say it. So I like to start with that, and I'd like to ask each of you what happened there, because that shook the financial futures industry, and that was a big attack. Good. Okay. So ION, over the last five to seven years, has acquired a number of financial services and technology vendors. FIDESA is one of them. It probably was their biggest uh, acquisition. And FIDESA is a provider of order and execution management systems, mainly equity and equity derivatives. They've got connectivity to hundreds of market participants, FCMs, exchanges, broker-dealers, trading destinations. And they're providing the plumbing for FCNs and firms to enter orders and get executions back from various venues globally. Uh, They were the subject of a ransomware attack. And so suddenly their systems were frozen and locked up, inhibiting the ability of their users to enter information, find out where they were. So uh, the, the conundrum that their users had was, where am I with orders and executions? Am I long, short, or flat? And then the post-trade aspects of that flowing through the rest of the plumbing through to their clearing system, the clearing houses, et cetera. It impacted participants and exchanges in, in the U.S. and Europe and Asia. Very quickly spread. So let's start for people like myself. What is ransomware? So ransomware is simply malicious software. But in this case, what ransomware does, it'll literally encrypt your systems and make them inoperable. And they will then ask you for a ransom to have them unlock those systems um, so that you can get back to operating effectively. It's typically done through some type of social engineering attack. Um, Of course, you can insert a fob and put it on there, but it's mostly done through phishing. And once somebody clicks it, the thing downloads, it um, searches for other systems that could be susceptible to the malware, and then it infects it. And then, of course, after that, they encrypt it. A lot of times they'll exfiltrate that data as well as encrypt it. So even if you do have a response recovery capability to get it back up, they'll also use the data that they have out there to coerce you to still pay by telling you that they will release that data on the dark web if you don't pay them. So that presumably involves, you know, all sensitive data, trade data, customer information, you know, identifying data, the whole works. And when I read about the attack on ION, so people were unable to get out of their positions and unable to liquidate their positions, unable to execute any trades. And how did that happen? Because ION was a trading software provider, like a front end. Is that correct? Right. It's a front end. Yeah. Now, so many firms over the years 
have at least two of most vendors, two front-end systems, for example, depending on how you use them and depending on how the connectivity they have with the plumbing with the rest of the industry, uh, it wasn't easy for these firms to say, okay, I'll, uh, I can't use Podesta, I'll swing over to the blue vendor or the red vendor to enter my orders, et cetera. So very cumbersome for some firms to have an immediate continuance of their business because of that. And then how long did it take for them to understand what was the, the problem? How well did Ion, Fidesa, and the industry communicate relative what's the problem, what's the extent of the problem, et cetera, what are we doing about it? So very few people had a way out of Dodge, as we say, in terms of uh, an alternative way to enter orders and trades. But again, if I had orders I entered through that system and I didn't get executions back, did I get filled or not? Do I have exposure or not? Am I long, short, or flat in terms of my positions? Uh, and depending on the type of business you're in, whether I'm dealing as a pure agent or agency and, and, or, and principal or a prop trading firm, uh, the levels of exposure uh, grow ex exponentially from there. And then most of these systems have a service level agreement. So it might be, for example, um, there's a two-hour recovery time objective so that if there is a problem, depending on what it is, they contractually agree to get it back and running within two hours. Well, clearly they breached that. But if I'm an FCM and I had entered orders for a client um, and I can't report back to him if he's filled or not, what kind of legal exposure do I have? Is there uh, litigation from the users of these systems, or the FCMs in this case, back to Ion Fidesza and really upstream, the, the clients of the FCMs have, have recourse against them? That would depend upon, to some extent, you know, if our industry futures has some of the best risk disclosure statements in the world. But would this be covered? That's an interesting, you know, had something I hadn't even thought about. I'm not a lawyer and Michael isn't either. But uh, the question is, is this considered a force majeure event? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, but it's clearly a widespread event in terms of a cyber attack. So, you know, to someone like myself who's not familiar with these matters, my question would be what security measures did ION take? You know, to, would they have taken, do you think, as far as you can tell, to prevent this from happening in the first place? Well, there's a lot of different things that folks can do to try to prevent these things. But I always suggest to folks, once you're targeted by a really good group, it's not a matter of if they're going to get in, it's when they're going to get in. And are you prepared once they get in is really the question, right? You know, the Ponemon uh, cost of the breach annual report, the FBI, the United States Secret Service have all said that the biggest thing that mediated the, the impact of a cost of a breach has been your ability to respond to that actual thing happening to you. So you need to anticipate it's going to happen, right? You need to have a plan what you're going to do when it happens to you so everybody's not running around willy-nilly trying to figure out what to do, what to communicate, who to talk to, who to notify, right? Then you practice it, practice it, practice it. This is part of what John and I used to do with the annual FIA um, cybersecurity tabletop exercises where we would do it with industry-wide and we would play out scenarios exactly like this one and talk about what would happen if this component of the ecosystem went down, how would you react? And I think there was a false security that everyone thought that the big people would all pull them out of it. But we were really trying to get for folks to look at what would happen in your shop. What would you do? What would your team do um, if this happened? What would your plan A or plan B or plan C be 
in the event that this happened, and we would always inject in there something that they weren't anticipating, like something that caused them to be down longer or something that they thought would be there just wasn't there either, or another entity was affected because in these complex systems, which are comprised of many different components, each one of them has their own risk. And understanding that risk is what's really relevant um, when you're talking about systemic risk across all of these groups, right? So I, I would argue that um, if you're targeted, especially by a group like the one that they were targeted by, which by the way, folks would buy cyber insurance to have liability transfer, but a lot of the cyber insurance companies already said, oh, wow. if you get hit by a nation state, we're out, you're on your own, right? And so you have to want, you have to consider what folks are thinking at that point. Um, but if you get hit, you gotta have that plan on, on what you're going to do when it happens to you, how you're going to recover, do you pay the ransom? These are not decisions you're making on the fly. These decisions are already made. And if you're going to pay it, where are you gonna get the Bitcoin? Is it okay to pay it? Is the group that's threatening you um, on the terrorist list so you, you can or cannot pay them? All these questions are things that we go through when we structure these scenarios and help people practice. That practice makes mu muscle memory effective, so you know what to do if you end up in these situations. The question is, had they done it? And if they had done it, you know, did they follow their plan the way they practice it? Regulators are looking for participants to have resiliency and programs that are appropriate for their size and scope of business. So what would be appropriate for a small FCM wouldn't be appropriate for a Citigroup or Morgan Stanley or someone of that size and scale. And, and to Mike's point, do you have an incident response plan as part of your business continuance, overall topic being business continuance? And you know how well are you prepared for that? Bitcoin is the currency of choice for these ransomware attacks. So some firms allegedly have, have stockpiled some Bitcoin for this contingency or found the ability to get some quickly. But to Mike's point, if you pay it, is it covered by insurance? But if it's, a, if it's considered a nation state, are you supporting terrorism? The FBI is going to be the next guy knocking on your door. So uh, you've got a catch-22 situation. Do I pay it or, or not? But the awareness of this uh, in the last, I would say, seven years, Mike, the, the administration, the government has, has raised the awareness of cyber, the importance of cybersecurity across all vertical industries, not just financial services goes back to the Obama days, roughly 2015, and um, urging firms to be prepared, better prepared for this, raising the visibility at the sea level to, in terms of understanding what is this, not just you know a bunch of techies in the back room will go fix this if something goes wrong. This is a high-profile, newsworthy event. If you look at some of the major events over the years, you know, Sony got hacked. They basically stole their entire library of, of film and, and it took them months and months and months to reconstruct it a uh, high profile event this this is a high profile event needless to say but these these actors have been working their way up the food chain by starting with small or small to medium-sized enterprises fine-tuning their techniques and their tools to prepare for larger attacks like this this is extortion at the end of the day so when we talk about systemic risk does it because the financial system's interconnected is it a matter of when you say, you know, like Citibank's cybersecurity measures aren't going to be expected of a small CTA or an introducing broker, but is the security system of the cybersecurity practices and hygiene of the smaller firms, does that also impact and could that cause contagion on the bigger industries or not? It's possible. It's possible. If you look at the futures industry, it's more of a hub and spoke 
and the hub being the exchanges and the clearinghouses. You know, depending on who your counterparty is, if I'm a prime broker and, and, and some of my, one or more of my firms gets hit, you know, what's the spillover effect from there? What's the knock-on effect from there? So it depends on the type of business you're in. If you're a large FCM doing a lot of clearing business, you know, there may be a, a knock-on effect there that may not be an industry-wide contagion, but it could be. It could spill over to that depending on the nature of the problem. So that possibility is there question is the probability. Will, will it happen? And when I was researching both of you, and you've been doing this for a long time, and I both of you have, looking at past interviews, tried to raise awareness of this issue in the industry and through the FIA. What was your feedback? Did you get some resistance like, well, that's, you know, something that is possible, but after the ION attack, I would imagine it should be front and center for every firm. I was the former head of the Business Continuity Management Committee for the FIA. And we got some pushback prior to 2015 or 16 in terms of doing something like this. And finally, the light bulb went off and we, we did. We did, Mike, four or five of these at least from roughly 2017 to 2020 or 21. We did a workshop with a ransomware attack, not dissimilar than this back in 2019. Oh. And when we did these, we had a number of people in the room, the business side, the technology side of FCMs, exchanges, clearinghouses, the FIA, et cetera, and walked through a diabolical situation like this. Mike and I were part of the planning of that. But, you know, as Mike is saying, the muscle memory. So the thought process of, okay, do you have this? What's your What's the first thing you thought of when, when this thing hit the fan? What did you talk about internally? You know, if a competitor or peer of yours got hit, are you thinking about, oh my, my God, is am I hit also? What do I look at? So it's not like, oh, poor those guys over there. The industry is so interconnected that they're probably a counterparty in some way, shape or form. Uh, what kind of reliance, interreliance do we have upon them? What's the impact at the clearinghouse level, et cetera. So all of these, these, these factors come into play relative to people's thought process, or they should. And this is, you know, we're just talking futures here. It's the same and maybe a little more complex and more fragmented on the equity side. So SIFMA got involved, as did the FIA in the FIDESA event, because people were using FIDESA to, to route orders to the equity markets. Yeah, and I would add, the Treasury commented that you know, this outage did not represent a systemic risk to the financial sector. So that kind of puts, you know, the futures trading compared to other asset classes into the Treasury's perspective of systemic risk. <laughs> but, you know, if you were impacted um, as a smaller firm, you might have a different perspective. I mean, uh, you know, not knowing your position for, you know, days and not being able to, you know, margin up in time to for the next day's trades is, Kind of interesting. Then you're depending on the big players in the industry to, to kind of you know offset that risk to you, while you don't know what's going on, and that's a very difficult place to to be. However, the interdependencies on third parties that perform functions to assist members in fulfilling its regulatory obligations is something that the NFA actually provided guidelines to. I believe it was in November 2021, and we did a couple of uh, shops over at DePaul's Risk Center on this topic with NEBA and a couple other groups where we actually talked about third-party risk and we shared the stage with NFA to talk about, you know, not only the guidelines, but what teams could be doing to prepare themselves for these types of things. And properly testing for potential outages is always the thing that we would we would emphasize and overemphasize to folks because you don't know what, who's connected to what. You don't know how they're connected. You don't know what they are doing to remain resilient. 
So you've got to have a backup plan. And we, we would always overemphasize that. Mike will also tell you that some of the important fundamental things that people should be doing are in no specific order. It's visibility and understanding at the sea level, number one, pushing that downward to individual users in terms of cybersecurity training, good practices for users, because a lot of the, the ways this creeps in is through phishing and weak passwords, et cetera. So uh, password management, uh, software patch management, these are all what I'll call best practices for good housekeeping. And then regular penetration and vulnerability testing for looking for uh, potential ways for people to creep in to, to do things like that. That's all fundamental, uh, good housekeeping things that will help make you resilient. Uh, it may not prevent you 100% from getting hit because these guys are getting smarter. The methods they're using are stealthier. Uh, in the workshop we did with the FIA back in 2019, what caused this was you got an email from someone you knew. In this case, it was someone at the CFTC, something about you know a quarterly review, and you open that, and just by opening that email, launched this ugly ransomware, which spread and spread and spread and locked everything up. So they're getting pretty stealthy, pretty smart. Um, it's to the point where, and Mike, you might want to comment on this, you and I can go out on the dark web and find ransomware as a service. They're selling these tools for firms to pick up. It's like, well, you know, I'm not making enough of a return on my money of this of being a ransomware bad actor. Let me see if I can sell this stuff and, and make some return on it also. So, Mike, you may have some experience or comment on that. No, I, I think people underestimate what they're up against when they, you talk about this industry. It's an $8 trillion industry, a cybercrime industry, right? And it is very matured industry is comprised of different groups of folks that do different parts to actually execute an attack against someone. They split up the money in ways that are just incredible. To your point, the software they, they offer you as a service, you know, they actually send you patches to the software you buy from them, things like that, just like a regular antivirus software group will do. And they guarantee it. I mean, it, it really is a very mature ecosystem. Um, you, it's not some kid in a hoodie sitting in his basement, just kind of, you know, whacking at, you know, it is a group of folks who are very trained, well-skilled at what they do. They know how to get in, they know how to get out. And usually you don't even know they hit you until it's too late. In many cases, it's like, and they may have been in your systems for months for all you know, but nowadays the way the kill chain works, they can get you in two, two or three seconds, the payload drops, it executes, and then they're just sitting there waiting for the payoff, right? So you're talking about an $8 trillion industry. I mean, that's it's far, that dwarfs the, the entire crypto world. It's the third largest GDP next to China and the U.S. <laughs> and Mike, it's fair to say it's dominated by a few players, right? That's <laughs> true. Really? So there are a few players and, and where are they? You know, just, we don't know anywhere. There are more nation states involved in a lot of what's going on now. If someone gets an email from the CFTC and it's about, well, you know, about the your quarterly review or where, how would they know? Would they have to click and search the address? You won't. You won't. You know, it's so stealthy that, okay, I'm, I'm sending you an email from a known person. And, you know, we get emails all the time and you click on it and suddenly, you know, it's, it looks innocuous, but, you know, all the ugly, ugliness happens behind it once you've launched it. That's just one method. It's, it's, it's a phishing or a, or a gullibility, so to speak. But there are, are other routines that these 
these bad actors use relative to uh, the service attacks, malicious ads, you know, clickbait, various things like that, that uh, begin to launch the malware that generates. So with this size of an industry and very sophisticated attackers and perpetrators, are we equipped are our best defenses and if industry participants listen to everything both of you gentlemen said would there still be no 100% guarantee right you, you have to be on the defense 100% of the time so if you're a, a market participant or whatever or a vendor you got to get it right every day all the time the bad guys only have to get it right once but you don't give up i mean this is why we do what we do and there are a lot of groups out there that are here to help us i mean infraguard there's an FBI private sector partnership um, where we work together to protect critical infrastructure. And the Secret Service has what's called the um, Electronic Crimes Task Force for, um, you know, white collar crimes, things that happen in financial sector, things like that. And, and um, you know, we are all collectively working with a purpose. And these guys are well equipped. They know what they're doing. They know how to do it. A lot of folks will not call them, though, when they get breached. They don't want to tell them that they got breached. They don't want to disclose, which is one of the reasons why the SEC now is all about that that quick disclosure, as well as availing, you know, um, yourself a board member or board advisors who understand technology and, more importantly, understand cybersecurity. Um, so I, I see the regulators trying to move in the right direction. Um, but sadly, if, if the only reason people do security is to get in front of an auditor, um, then the motivation is pretty much askew. And what happens with us, I mean, most of the calls I get these days is either, you know, I just got hacked and, and, and I don't know how to, how to, how to pay the ransom. You know, um, I just got a big old audit finding. I got to fix this before they come back. Or I just got a third party risk management, um, 120 page, 20 question questionnaire. I need help filling it out. And, and that's the biggest thing that they call us for, right? Versus, you know, someone like 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 Les Rosenthal, when I worked for Rosenthal Group, that was his money he was trading. He was really legitimately concerned about protecting his money and his assets. And he wanted somebody in there who would protect it for him. And that's how I ended up being one of the first CISOs in our space was somebody who wanted to do security for security reasons and not just trying to get in front of, of some regulator potentially walking through the door. You would hope everybody would be that club, that smart, right? And call you before something happens or how to pay ransomware. Do you think that after IEON, ION, that the effect is salutary, that people will, it's raised awareness and people in the industry will now take this seriously and act more like less Rosenthal and less like, oh yeah, you know, I don't open emails. Like I'm pretty, we're pretty good. We've got these you know, this policy. What do you think? On one hand, I would hope so. Uh, on the other hand, it's like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Okay, it's it just happened the end of January. It's March now. Things have calmed down. You know, unless that is ingrained in the culture of the entity, whether it's a market participant or a vendor or whatever, that on, on a regular basis every day, training, awareness, visibility, Put the tools in place behind the scene to take as much of the burden away from the end user as possible, because the end user is your single point of failure. The person who clicked on that email or the clickbait or whatever, that's your, your single point of failure. That, that's your, your weakest link in the chain. The more you can wrap around them, 
with things like multi-factor authentication. I'll let Mike talk about other techniques and tools. Takes the burden away from that and gives you a little more centralized control of your cybersecurity strategy. Mike, I'll let you comment more on, on what you've seen and what you espouse out there. Well, I want to come back to, you know, you would hope so, but, you know, humans are by nature reactionary, right? And out of sight, out of mind, I think is John's point. There's been five, at least five executive orders over the last three administrations on cybersecurity. How well are we doing with even five executive orders? I mean, that's just, you know, not how people tend, tend to, uh, you know, tend to do things, unfortunately. And, and, and I think it's a great opportunity but again, I mean, once this is out of sight, out of mind, it, it's going to take somebody getting a huge hand slap and we're, we'll, it'll be the talk of the day for a week or two and then it's gone away. But again, I think things like what the SEC is doing um, with some of these mandates that they have. I mean, can you believe at one point before Enron, you weren't, a, you weren't required to have a qualified financial person on a board, right? And, and everybody goes, what? And, and now they're getting to the point where they're looking for qualified technical experts to be on boards and set up things like risk committees where you're having this discussion at the appropriate level with board subcommittees who are asking these questions instead of some guy from IT showing up once a month talking about, you know, they, they, how many viruses or how many phishing emails that they send. It really is about the risk to a complex system that could potentially put everybody at risk if you don't understand the, the, those risks as well. And Mike, you, you may have seen that and certainly in the last few years, the CISO, the, the CISO uh, in many entities reports to the C-level. It re doesn't report to the head of technology, it reports to the CEO or the C-level or has some visibility at the board level, right? Yeah, and that's still roughly, you know, less than 20% uh, have that, that designate. They may have a C, but it's a little C. It's not like they're actually in the C-suite, but a lot of us have really been pushing that it needs to be more visible. And oddly enough, the biggest pushback comes from the CIO, who also was not in the boardroom 15 years ago, <laughs> if you think about it, right? The cost of ransomware, Tamara, uh, is not just, you know, paying the ransom, but it's, you know, loss of business, downtime, reputational damage. So there's there's tangible and intangible cost to associate with a ransomware attack. I mean, in the case of Ion, if you if you are stuck in a position, you don't even know where you are, you potentially have unlimited risk, you know, in certain scenarios. I mean, imagine if this happened when oil went negative. Um, it, it's just crazy to think about that, you know, you think in our really otherwise, I mean, we're really well-regulated, well-functioning markets. We don't think of those things. We know where you are. We have tremendous, we have the most liquid markets, at least in futures in the world. But it's funny because I thought of this topic, you know, I saw the, read about ION and then I saw uh, CFTC Com C Commissioner Christy Romero. She said that in 2022, like she took a poll of 130 global financial firms and 74% had experienced a cybersecurity event. Which is so it's not just ion. This is this is happening a lot. So are we just not talking about it as as you say, or people not reporting it other than to their regulator? Well, some people don't like to make headline news that way. If you're a public company, certainly if you're a bank or whatever, you don't want to make headline news with something like that in terms of just your reputational damage and then credibility with your customers and users, et cetera. So some of that is human nature. Some of it is, you know, 
there are uh, disclosures being put in place that have been in place that, that are requiring you to disclose this to the regulators, et cetera. Some of this will make its way into, into public filings relative to, we had three breaches in the last quarter. Two of them were, were uh, rectified. One of them was serious. It, it was, you know, they'll, they'll try to describe it in some way, shape, shape or form, but there's been more and more, more and more pressure to do that from the regulators being pushed down on, on participants. Okay. Michael, you touched on in fall of 2021, the CFTC had guidance on third party, you know, third risk assessment for third party vendors. And is that enough or is that the weakest point for an FCM or even, and even the smaller participants in the futures world is just a questionnaire enough? Because in some, to some extent you're taking the vendor's word for it, right? So are you as good as their best cybersecurity practice? Well, I mean, and it's the NFA and, and they particularly were interested if you sourced out something that was a critical function related to your role as an NFA member, that they wanted you to have some level of due diligence, understanding the risk of that third party that you had sourced that critical function out to, which only makes sense. But to your point, if I ask them questions, is the questionnaire sufficient? One of the things I ask is, do you have a SOC 2, which is a certification that is accredited by um, the Trusted Criteria Group that will literally say if these people have a pretty robust program in place. You typically cannot pass a SOC 2 Type 2 just by talking the talk. They have to come in, they inspect things, they, they look at what you do, they give you a grade on how well you did, and they highlight in that report all the things that you failed at, and then they get management's attestation to say, yep, we identify that, yep, we addressed it, and here it is. And part of getting that SOC 2 for a vendor is, you know, it demonstrates to you that they are serious about what they need to do from a security perspective. And so we actually recommend to a lot of our clients, get it anyway, right? If you can get it, get it. And then when, when folks have choices between vendors and you've got one, guess what? You're the obvious choice in that case when the others don't have them, right? Tomorrow, firms have been pressed by the regulators to do this due diligence on their, their key vendors. And so, you know, they may have put questionnaires together to send to their vendors, whether it's a data center vendor or a front office or back office vendor, et cetera. And the question is, how invasive can you get with your due diligence? Yeah, they, they gave you an answer, and I took it at face value that, you know, they've got this, they've got this, they've had no problems, whatever. How far can you take it? How far will they let you take it? Certain large vendors are, you know, they're pretty rigid and they're pretty structured, and there's only a certain amount of things that they'll give you. We've put some questionnaires together for our clients relative to going out to vendors. Mike's probably been on both ends of that, both sending and receiving that will only increase with whatever you know regulations come forward from here uh, relative to putting the burden on the market participants to do their due diligence on, on their key vendors. But if I'm using the blue vendor and that blue vendor is, is a cloud-based service and their cloud provider or a component of the cloud service fails, I have no control of that. I have no control of my vendor uh, whether he should be in Amazon's or Microsoft's cloud service. I have no, no control over that. But the fact is, I'm using that vendor. I'm using it for a key uh, function in the lifecycle of trading. 
And I've gotten X amount of, of information from them relative to how they're structured, what their resiliency is. Hopefully, I've got service level agreements embedded in any contracts I have with them. But again, even if I did, and they were, there are SLAs with, with, with Podesta, that got blown away with the nature of this attack in terms of how big and, and how widespread it was. Could I ask each of you then, just in general terms, for what each of you would recommend as best practices for participants in the futures and in the security, in lar- more largely in the broader securities industry? Mike, you want to start? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record because I actually do quite a fair amount of cybersecurity tabletop exercises for my clients. And I literally set up scenarios where we go through things like ransomware, as well as business email compromise, as well as other different ways that they could be affected by cyber risk. I mean, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, you're trying to ensure availability or resiliency of these systems so that folks can use them. And people tend to forget that, you know, it's beyond just the technology, it's the people involved. So we do these tests, we test key man risk. You know, the guy who runs everything isn't there, he's on an airplane and you get attacked, what do you do? And we really challenge people to work around these risks so they can understand what they need to do. We recently did one with ransomware and everybody thought we're ready, we're ready. But you know, the way I do these tabletops, I make sure that I'm, I'm anticipating their next answer, having some understanding of their environment and how it works, and typically having a better understanding of the complexity of the system that they work in than they do, I can ask the next question that's not anticipated. But when you do, you know, I, at the end of each one, I go, any aha moments, any observations, and that feedback is just priceless. When somebody goes, wow, I really thought about that, but I didn't think about this. Because they'll say, well, here's what I'll do. And I'll say during the exercise, okay, do it. Then they'll realize what it's going to take to do it. Like they may need access to the system, but that system's gone, right? Or they may need to communicate. I'll use Teams. Well, Teams is unavailable. You know, you you keep throwing these things out there, but you, and every time you do it, people have to think it through, think it through. And there's no bad answer to anybody in there. So you don't have any, any hot shots trying to show off. We can, we work those all out and everybody's working together and you're thinking through the problems. The more you get people to think through problems and you do a, a ransomware scenario, and you do it three or four times, it is locked down. I mean, people know what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it. They know who makes the call about paying the ransom or not. They know when to call the Secret Service or the FBI, right? Because uh, there's times when you have to, because those guys will give you some coverage that you can't get. You can't make an ISP not delete your data. Those guys pick up the phone, and guess what? They're not deleting that data. They got a stay order just from those guys calling them. They have a lot more influence and they have a lot more experience because they deal with it every single day. And those are the folks I want on my team. I pick up a phone and say, hey, hey, Eric, can you guys give me a hand here? I just, we just got it. And they tell you how to get the, how to preserve data. So if you have to go to court, right, everything is can be used in court. You haven't destroyed it by unplugging machines. And, and dumping the memory. So there's a lot that goes into do, even doing the forensics elements of it. So having a plan, having a contact list, knowing who to call, when to call them during those incidents and practice, practice, practice. I can't emphasize it enough. I've seen it work. So here's a great example. I'm going to digress just for a minute. Before the pandemic, we had just did a pandemic exercise with one of my favorite banks. I call them my gold star bank. And we went through that exercise and I used the Spanish flu and 50 million people who died from that, right? And folks are like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. But we prepped as if it was the Spanish flu. Compared to one of the banks, we had never done a pandemic exercise. These folks 
executed perfectly. They they had the doors shut in early March before everybody else because they knew and they anticipated. They had their matrices of backup staff, everything. They were already up and running. We didn't have to go out and buy machines. We had it all worked out and it was it was beautiful. Compared to the other bank, it took them four and a half, five months to get fully operational. And these guys were already running within a, a week of, of everybody leaving. And that's what I mean. Once you go through it, and sadly, sadly, it, there's a there's a great McKinsey interview out right now of the folks from Equifax, and they talk about their lessons learned and how not to let a good crisis go to waste. It is a great interview of the market. I believe the sales marketing person from Equifax, and she talks about the cultural shift they had to go through. Sadly, it took the incident to get them to actually focus on it. But she says the most underrated thing she thinks is effective change management, marshalling everybody to focus on these risks, do something about it, get it in place, and then just become a different entity altogether afterwards. That's great. That's really valuable information. And I didn't even realize that the Secret Service and the FBI were a resource because most cybersecurity plans that I've seen by firms don't include that. They don't mention that at all. I would echo to, to what Mike said that and we've we've done this for our for our clients part of best practices in, in terms of your business continuance capability is not just disaster recovery but it's also cybersecurity incident response so you have a hacker you have an internal bad actor you have malware ransomware whatever outlining what the firm's response will be to that some firms have something just for compliance purposes, four or five pages. That's a great work of fiction, as my partner would call it, as opposed to something that really uh, works, that you test, that you believe in, et cetera. And that as you have problems, you, you update it in terms of what did we do here? This is new information. Certainly, by best practices, at least annually, firms should be looking at that and their business continuity plan, updating it for major changes. In the, in the cyber world, in the business continuity world, you should be keeping track of any kind of problems you've encountered, small or large. An after-action report relative to what was the cause and effect, what was the impact, what did we do, lessons learned, what are we, what are we going to do to fix things, et cetera. Documenting that and having that internally, typically a general counsel or, or, or compliance will, will keep charge of something like that, but, but fed into by the business and the technology side. That's very important. Training, you know, regular cybersecurity awareness to the, the rank and file staff, but a um, tabletop exercise like Mike's been talking about. We've done these also. We've done them with Mike relative to coming in and diabolically putting together a situation. Okay, this this just hits you in, in smack in the face. What was the first thing you thought of? You know, when you couldn't get in the building uh, this morning, uh, where would you go? Uh, where would you continue your, your work? Things like that. What's the thought process when when the Fidesa thing locked up? Uh, oh, I got orders out there. How do I find out where they are? Is there a way of going to the exchange directly and having them recap to me what they showed, what what they got from me? The reliance on or interreliance on some of the plumbing, uh, fixed connectivity, and, and and order routing and executions. Some of the problems with Fidesa was allocations and give-ups were greatly impacted. Again, downstream from orders and trades, and then large trader reporting everything else. There's the downstream, the knock-on effect of that. These are tools. And, and one of my dear Chicago friends, I will quote him as saying, a fool 
with a tool is still a fool. So you have a great work of fiction in this cybersecurity incident response, the five-page thing here, whether it's even 50 pages. If you don't use it, if you don't roll it out and engage the, uh, the management team on it, that when you do have a problem, you're going to have a bunch of people running around. You take an incident, a disruption incident that escalates into a crisis, and a crisis escalates to a disaster. You don't want to have that. You don't want to make headline news by your actions or inactions. You don't want to be known for the wrong reasons, for sure. Um, so I gather, you know, listening to both of you, it, it makes sense for firms to get a third party on board. And so even if they, I would imagine, use a, an IT firm to do their smaller processors, I would think so a big topic like cybersecurity, would you agree that it makes sense to get a third party involved? Certainly specialist people that know things. I'll give you an example from one of our clients. Uh, we work for a large investment management client in New York, and they don't have a, a public website per se, like a Fidelity or Schwab would, because of the nature of the business that, that they're in. But they bring in once a year a special firm to do penetration and vulnerability testing. And they found this one firm because one of their IT people, the head of this firm, had a university presentation so they bring this firm in and they did a real good job and they found a vulnerability. And then the next year they brought another firm in, not the same one. And I said to them, Joe, why didn't you bring XYZ back in here? He said, well, they did a great job, but I want a clean perspective on this. I don't want the same guys coming in every year. It's telling me it's this, it's this, it's this, or you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. I, I want to fail. I want these guys to find vulnerabilities because my environment is, is evolving. My software, I've got more software in there. I've got updates. Maybe I don't have updates. I've got new hardware and it uses new connectivity. It's not static. And because it's, it's constantly evolving, I need, and it's complex, very complex. I need a very objective set of eyes and ears looking at that. And Mike, you, you, you can probably comment on that from your direct experience. Yeah, vendor variance is something I recommend a lot so that you get a different perspective. And then once someone really gets used to your environment, you know, they can kind of get stale in their approaches as, as well. But, but you know, those things are, are there to do one thing, and that is to test how well you're doing. I think there's entirely too much emphasis on technology. I mean, Bruce Shear once said, you know, if you think cybersecurity is about technology, then you don't understand security and you don't understand technology. It is your practices that you do, your disciplines. You know, everybody's moving to the cloud, right? They, the digital transformation, they're doing it because the CFO sees I can get systems without going through, you know, capital expenditure charges. I can just chalk it out up through elasticity for OPEX and then it, it's transparent on the cash, cash sheet, right? However, once they get up there, they do these, they lift everything and move it out there and they don't take advantage of, you know, cloud security architecture or cloud native architecture to actually do security. And a lot of times they turn off the security to make their legacy systems work. And that's what they, these guys prey on. They're like, you got these, these knuckleheads who were old Linux and Sun uh, administrators trying to move into the cloud, don't even understand cloud technology. And they are just making these environments so insecure, but they're being pushed to move out there in such a hurry without understanding the risk. And there are not enough cloud security architects available. I mean, it is the one field that if you get that certification, you're going to work the rest of your life because there's not enough people who know how to do it and, and definitely not enough people who know how to do it well. And then when you go to move things out, they should have that architecture reviewed and tested at that point. 
But again, it comes down to the disciplines that you have in-house, really, really good change management, change control, configuration management, because these are all the things that get exploited. They're looking for things that they can exploit. They're vulnerable and can I exploit it? And then you have to anticipate it's going to get exploited. And if it gets exploited, you limit the blast radius, right? If they compromise this, the most they can get is this. They can't get throughout my entire network because it's not flat. I've got network segmentation in place. So it's, it's a layered defense. The policies to your earlier point, John, they're just deterrents, right? They only keep the honest people honest. Um, they're good for auditors or compliance people, but no hacker is going to stop and read your policy before he hands you your, your, your dinner, right? And that's what it is. And then everything else comes after that. There's your defense. There's your prevention mechanisms, which are controls that actually stop people from doing what they're doing. And if they get past those, you got to have the capability to detect it. you got to see it. And if you see it, then you got to respond to it. And the worst case scenario is you don't respond well and you got to do recovery. And that's really the layered defense from a security perspective. People don't understand these things. They just think, I get a tool, I'm good. And to John's point, fools with tools. <laughs> I'm sensitive to time. And I really, again, thank you so much for being on here. Ken, and I don't mean to put both of you on the spot, but I hope you'll come back or consider coming back to discuss all of this in the context of the open AI, because I think that'll be another interesting topic. And also, I mean, this is a huge issue because, you know, air control systems and buildings, water supply, the electrical grid. I mean, we could go on. And again, I hope you'll consider coming back because I'd love to hear your thoughts on those topics too. And, and as this relates to AI and open AI, because that is really catching on. And, and I have heard that there are security risks in the broader world and in those fields specifically. And Mike, how many uh, ransomware actors are using AI to drive and exploit uh, vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's, it's most of it's automated now. <laughs> it's, yeah, ransomware is a service, indeed, and it's not it's not a trite term. You you can find it out there. Thanks for having us. That's crazy. Thank you so much. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara, and I look forward to talking again. Great. Thank you. 